Let's pray together. Father, we praise you that the day when we get to be with you will be one of rejoicing for we who are your children. And Father, that's only because of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And God, I pray this morning that as we turn now to your word in which we we have come to know these truths, we who are your children, who have been saved by grace through faith in your Son, Jesus. God, I pray that these truths this morning would be brought to life for someone, anyone today who is yet to experience the hope that Christ provides, the joy of which we've sung, and I pray has been evident on our faces, not merely in our hearts. God, in the peace your word describes as passing all understanding. Father God, would you direct our time now to your word in which your gospel is clear. Father, and might we set aside the concerns that may have been brought with us. Father, would you guard our our, our hearts from distraction and, Father, error from my lips so that what we hear today would be what you desire we hear so that we might leave having experienced the God of the gospel in a way that brings glory to you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to the psalm that was read for us just a moment ago by Mary? Psalm 95, Psalm 95, and as you're finding this song, I'd like for us to consider a question. In light of the events of this past week, the celebration that we've held, the reason for this special season, how are you thankful? Not for what are you thankful, but how are you thankful? And this is a question that struck me about three weeks ago as I was preparing an article for The the Voice, our monthly newsletter, uh, which I always turn in on time for Irma. And as as I was mulling over the the significance of Thanksgiving as a holiday and just the commercialization that's taken over, I was struck by the thought that I've been very intentional with my family to keep our focus on being thankful. Now, every year before we sit down and devour our turkey along with host of other delicious treats, we take a moment to list the things for which we're thankful. And this is a tradition that that we've had from as long as I can remember, so I'm sure from as soon as my children were able to remember. And as I'm sure you can imagine, we've had a host of, of great things for which we're thankful. We've been thankful for cartoon characters and pets and imaginary things that as they've all featured, but as we've matured, so too has our appreciation for all that God has done for us. And in fact, I've been so so struck by the impact that this practice has had on our family's outlook that that we've tried to make it a part of our everyday. And so before we go to bed, we pray together and we go around the group and we provide each person with an opportunity to express one thing for which they're thankful. And I always love listening to the responses, particularly when somebody's miffed about something, because as you know, it is hard to be thankful when, when you're angry, isn't it? And so I've been very intentional with my family in addressing this question, a question that I know you've heard and that have at least considered if you're a part of our family in light of this series, 
regarding thanksgiving in the Psalms. And that's the question of what are you thankful for? But I have failed to delve deeply into the question of how are you thankful? In other words, how do you express this attitude of gratitude? How are you thankful? As a contemporary culture in which words, even actions, may often be disingenuous, I believe Psalm 95 descriptively answers this question as it both exhorts and then warns its original singers regarding the specific practices that were to mark Israel's thanksgiving on the occasion of their return from exile in Babylon. But I also believe that this song prescriptively answers our question, meaning it details that which we should embody individually, corporately, as we seek to give God thanks. And so, with that said, let's begin by examining Psalm 95's exhortation. The exhortation and the opening lines of this song declare, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before Him with thanksgiving and extol Him with music and song. And then this call continues, verse 6, where we hear, Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. And Emmanuel, in, in these three verses, I believe that we're exhorted to five different ways to demonstrate thanksgiving. Six, depending on how you choose to break them down, but we're going to go with five this morning. Well, the first is to sing, to sing. But before we consider this activity specific, singing, let me explain why I, I'm arguing that this action, the action of singing, along with the other four that we'll see together, are descriptive of thanksgiving and not simply practices seen distinct from it. And I believe that the answer is given to us in verse 2, where the act of entering God's presence or, or coming before Him is associated with thanksgiving. As I'm sure many of you know, in the Old Testament, worship always took place in God's presence. In Exodus, or Genesis 17, following God's promises to Abram to make him into a great nation, to give him descendants as numerous as the stars, we read that when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. The Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. And what was Abram's response? <laughs> the man fell face down, the scriptures say. Face down before God and worshipped him. And then we see the same practice later when God tested Abraham's faith and love by commanding him to sacrifice his son Isaac. And following Abraham's obedience, the Lord stayed his hand and he didn't kill his only son. And then God provided a ram, which Abraham promptly sacrificed as, a, as an offering of worship. It's this, this act of worship in God's presence is demonstrated over and over in the Old Testament as Jacob raised a pillar following his dream in which the Lord appeared to him. Moses hid his face, as you recall, when we studied that part of Exodus, when he stood before the burning bush in which God appeared to him. And then all of Israel cowed before Mount Sinai when God descended and appeared to his people. In every instance, when God appeared to his people, they responded in worship. And thus, I believe that the principal act in this song, Psalm 95, is the entering of God's presence with thanksgiving. Further. God's whole point, as you consider the story 
of Scripture. God's whole point of tabernacling with Israel was so that his people might be in a relationship with him. And that was a relationship defined by worship. And that worship was elaborately detailed in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And those four books are descriptions of God's radical otherness from his sinful people and their radical need of his glorious presence. And so God provided them with this intricate list of instructions regarding the tent that they were to build and the practices that they were to follow such that he might dwell in their midst and they might worship him without being consumed. And then all throughout their desert travels, God's presence remained with Israel all in connection with the tabernacle until if you were with us last week, we saw together David became the king. And following his arrival in Jerusalem, David recognized that God's people were established now in the promised land and that he even had a palace, but that the Lord still dwelt in a tent. And so plans were made. And eventually Solomon, the son of David, built this glorious temple for the purpose of providing Israel with a place of worship, this place where they might enter God's presence with thanksgiving. However, as I'm sure many of you who are familiar with the Bible story know, Israel disobeyed. They broke God's covenant. They abandoned him, and so he punished them. Israel was exiled and the temple destroyed, but because of his great love, God rescued his people, and he brought them back to their home. He forgave them, and in time, they rebuilt the temple so that God's presence might once more dwell with them. And many scholars believe that it was this song, Psalm 95, which marked Israel's dedication of that second temple structure. And so I believe that the key action in this exhortation is that which is described in verse 2, the entering of God's presence with thanksgiving. So, how is such entering with thanksgiving expressed? Well, first of all, with joyful singing to the Lord. Joyful singing to the Lord. Verse 1. If you have an NIV, it reads, Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. The ESV leaves out the adjective. It offers, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Regardless, the action here is to sing. And to sing unqualified in the sense that we're not called to sing well, praise God, or on pitch, or in a choir, or whatever. We're exhorted to simply sing. Now, our singing is qualified in regards to the subject to whom we're to sing. The Lord, meaning He's our audience. Friends, we don't sing for the purpose or the person who's sitting next to us. When, when we enter God's presence, we do so without concern for the opinions of those who surround us. We don't sing for them. We sing to the Lord. And church, isn't this a liberating picture of how we demonstrate thanksgiving, particularly in our day and age where the opinions of others often threaten to, to overwhelm us, to, to drown us, and to steal our joy in thanksgiving? Now, my children sing in a choir, and they just love it. Actually, this past weekend, they were in the uh, Magi concert, for those of you who are familiar with that. And they did an amazing job. They're not the only ones there, I know, but I'm super proud because they're my kids. But every year, they sing in this choir, and this choir has two concerts, one in the spring, one at Christmas. So we're getting close to this Christmas concert, and I, I'm amazed every year about how well this choir performs, the pieces that they sing. And I am so proud of my children as they sing, and I am so thankful that they received their mother's musical talents because their father also sang in choirs when he was a child. And he sang with gusto and with joy to, to make his parents proud. And they were 
And they told him so, which was a good thing, because many of his friends and others often told him that as much joy and gusto as he expressed, he was always just off. He was close. He was climbing the mountain. He just couldn't quite get to the note that he was supposed to be singing. But I didn't sing for them, did I? I sang for my parents. And friends, neither do we sing for those who are sitting around us. We sing to the Lord. We demonstrate thanksgiving through singing and shouting. <laughs> I've been waiting all week to do that, just to make sure you're awake. I didn't know how to do it to make sure I didn't blow the speakers, but it worked out well. You're awake now. You're awake. So the second expression, I apologize if you're next to the speaker, but you're with me now. The second expression of thanksgiving is translated as let us shout aloud right, by the NIV. If you have an ESV, it says, make a joyful noise. And the ESV here connects that adjective that we saw absent in the previous phrase. It connects it here to the act of shouting rather than that of of singing, which I think is helpful because sometimes we attribute other emotions to shouting, don't we? And in my experience, the only shouting that I've heard by God's people corporately hasn't occurred in worship. It's usually occurred midweek when we have business meetings. And the attitude that's attributed to that drowning has rarely been joyful. It's most often been otherwise. And yet here we have the psalmist call for God's people to actually shout with joy to the Lord or shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Now, can can you imagine how you might feel were you to be in a worship service where this was taking place? How many of you would go back the following week. And be honest, because I fear that all too often we approach the event that's being described here in Psalm 95, that of corporate worship, the expression of thanksgiving to God by His people. We approach this event hyper-conscious, hyper-conscious, not of God, but of ourselves, and not of how we're perceived by God, but of how we're seen by our fellow worshipers based on trivialities like our hair or or our, our clothes, our shoes, or other worldly trappings. We are more aware of the efforts of those who lead us to express our worship, their mistakes or quirky mannerisms, even the music that they play, that we than we are of the one the music is meant to impress. Because as you sit in this service this morning, is your heart so filled with thanksgiving to God for all that he has done for you in the gospel. That is the fact that the creator of all that is, the God who spoke the earth, we believe, into existence and formed people, every single one of us, to live in a relationship with him, but against whom we rebelled and sinned, such that now all we know is death. This God sent his only son to live with us, like us in every way except without sin. Christ Jesus, God the Son, was the promised Savior who came and took our sin upon Himself. He then died on a cross in our place, paying our sin's debt in its entirety. And then three days later, He rose from the dead so that whoever repents of their sin and believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Guys, this is the God in whose presence we are gathered today. And He hasn't changed since the day this song was first sung. He is our rock of salvation. Can can you know him, be in his presence, 
and desire to give him thanks while remaining more concerned with the others who fill his throne room? Could you shout for joy? I'm serious. Could you shout this morning? Now, I would imagine that many have considered the application I'm about to employ. And so while I doubt it'll be novel, I do pray it'll still be effective. But consider the manner and the, the context in which we do express ourselves with, when we're genuinely joyful. Like when you receive the news that you were accepted into college or into a graduate program. You got your first job or your spouse. Now, then fiancé said, yes. I will marry you. You found out that you were going to be parents for the first time because the second time around, it's a little more sobering. First time around. Your team won the Super Bowl. And now we could go on giving scenarios, couldn't we? But in those moments of intense, authentic, unbridled joy in Thanksgiving, were our emotions restrained? Did we worry about what the man or woman sitting beside us thought? And I would argue it didn't matter in the least. In fact, if the scenario involves sports, then if the individual beside you rooted for the opposition, then your expressions were even more animated, weren't they? And directed at the one supporting the other team. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not suggesting that such overt expressions of emotion are essential to worship every time. Now, I fully appreciate the differences between the events that we've just described and that of corporate worship. But I also appreciate the cultural distinctives reflected in our text to those of our own. I simply want to highlight a tendency that I see prevalent in our church culture today. So, could you shout? Would you shout? And our psalm calls for us to express thanksgiving by singing, by shouting, and then third, by extolling him with music and song. And right here I'm considering both Music and song as a single means of extolling or, or of celebrating God. And as with our points prior, I believe that the focus here is the key. That, that's the Him who is being extolled. Because if God is the object of our celebrating, then our, our efforts cannot be half-hearted. Because as one commentator writes, tepid praise defeats its own purpose. You know, when Melinda and I got engaged... Paul and James, my two younger brothers, were unattached, had no plans to marry soon. So I was the first to bust up our trio. You know, we brothers were close, are close, and yet despite the fact that I was changing our fraternal dynamic, they celebrated with me because they loved me. And they celebrated wholeheartedly as evidenced by the fact that they wrote Melinda and me a song. And at our rehearsal dinner, Paul and James surprised us during that time that's given to family and friends to come and share funny, funny memories or well wishes for the bride and groom. Well, they came out and they performed this song, and it brought me to tears. Not because of how beautiful it was. It was quite awful, in fact, if I recall. <laughs> they forgot their lines. They, they, they couldn't remember the chords. But in that song, they used, they used music and words to celebrate my marriage to Melinda and we brothers. Forever connection. Sort of a brother bond, if you will. It was so genuine. And it was beautiful. Probably to none but me. But church, this is exactly what we should aim to do every Sunday. We come together to sing. Some better than others. To play music. Some simply listen. Others of us play. 
but all who participate, singers, players alike, we do so to extol our great God. Therefore, if there's a song that you don't particularly like, remember that the one playing and the one beside you singing with joy and gusto are celebrating God and His glorious gospel. And I challenge you to shift your focus off of yourself and onto Him and celebrate with them. Because who God is and what He's done is irrespective of how you feel. Our hearts ought to be so captured by God and His glory that He is all we care about when we're together. And if we love Him and we love one another as He's directed us to, then we will celebrate Him with music and song, with whatever means are at hand, so that He might be glorified. We express thanksgiving by singing, shouting, extolling with music and song, and by bowing. By bowing. Would you look back with me now to verse uh, 6 there, Psalm 95 in the latter half, or rather the first half. We're following this section in which the psalmist gives us the reasons for thanksgiving. And we'll come back and comment on the reasons in just a moment, but we read these words. Come, let us bow down in worship. Come, let us bow down in worship. If the first three expressions of thanksgiving are attention grabbers, I believe that this one is the exact opposite. And by this, I don't mean that we sing or shout or celebrate God to draw attention to ourselves. On the contrary, these activities serve, as we've said, to direct those who hear them being performed to the God who is being described or to whom glory is being ascribed. However, singing, shouting, and celebrating create a commotion, don't they? I mean, they, they're articulated activities, verbal expressions of thanksgiving that draw attention to the one engaged in them, however that individual goes about it, and regardless of their motivation. Bowing, on the other hand, directs all attention to the one who is being honored. And friends, I, I realize, if you were with us last week, we, we referenced this behavior in connection with Psalm 138, verse 2, where David declared, I will bow down toward your holy temple and will praise your name. And we noted then how unfamiliar we are today with such acts of humility. In our 21st century culture of equality, to show deference to another by an act so demeaning as to bow is completely unheard of. And therefore, it's hard for us to appreciate the significance of bowing in worship. And although we've likely all seen pictures in history books of people doing so, I doubt a one of us, at least speaking for myself, has ever practiced this expression of worship. And not simply because it's humbling. I also think it's because it lacks words. And maybe this pertains more to me than to you. But bowing is silent. It's a silent act. And we're typically a loud culture. We're drawn to the shrill and to the self-indulgent practices as we've seen in those first three. And as Americans, we love, on the whole, big, loud, busy. You know, fanfare is our kind of celebration. But closing our mouths, bowing our heads, it seems to be the antithesis of American Thanksgiving, parades. You can't have fireworks in a Macy's Day parade when you're bowing down. You can't make a public address to the nation and draw attention to yourself when you're stooped before others. And yet, the scriptures tell us in Psalm 46.10 to be still, to be quiet, and to know that I'm God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted 
in the earth. Bowing displays humility before the one so revered. Do, do you bow in your heart when you worship? The fourth expression of thanksgiving is bowing. And then the fifth is kneeling. Kneeling, where I believe that this, the repeated emphasis upon making one's position low before the Lord is just simply exaggerated in this point. For the psalmist, kneeling was a public act that displayed homage to the Lord. And it was intended to communicate worship or worship, which for the Hebrew equated to a complete prostration of oneself before the divine, which in this case we're told is the Lord our maker, our maker. He isn't some impersonal, unloving, capricious, and created, concocted deity that demands devotion. No, Yahweh is the creator, our maker, and we kneel before him. Why? For he is our God, described there in verse 7. And right here, if you want to look back to verse 3, then you'll see the many other reasons the psalmist gives for this expression of thanksgiving, along with all those that we've already discussed. We express our thanksgiving. How? By singing, shouting, celebrating with music and song, bowing and kneeling. Why? For the Lord is a great God, the great King above all gods. In His hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to Him. The sea is His. Why? Because He made it. And his hands formed the dry land. And he's our God. And I said we'd comment on these reasons earlier, but I believe they're pretty self-explanatory, aren't they? God is the great God. He isn't in competition with anyone. He isn't a good God surrounded by a host of other potentials. He alone is God, the great king above all gods, meaning the idols that are acknowledged by the nations all bow down before him. They express the very attitude called for there in verse 6, humble recognition that he's God. Where the humble there is, it's not describing their submission to God as willed, it's simply describing their humble position in regards to God's supremacy. And church, as we consider the question, how are we thankful I believe that the actions described here in Psalm 95 should color our lives, both individual and corporate practice of worship. As we enter God's presence to express our thanks for who He is, our, our Creator, our Maker, the great King over all gods who holds the mountains in His hands and to whom belong the seas, we ought to sing, shout, celebrate with music and song as we bow in worship, kneeling to display our recognition that He alone is God. This is why we gather weekly, isn't it? This is how we're thankful. Are you thankful in this way? Are you so overwhelmed by God and His grace lavished upon your life in the person and work of His Son, Jesus Christ, that you can't keep quiet? You can't follow Him secretly, refusing to publicly stand with Christ and align with His people through baptism. You, you have to sing and shout and let the world know that the Lord is God. More specifically, He's your God. And I pray that this is true for every single person here today. But if it isn't, know that it can be. You can, by God's grace, repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, and publicly declare your faith before this body today that you may then share in the joy that's voiced in verse 7. For we are the people of his pasture, the psalmist sings. That's God's people. We're the flock under his care as he watches over us. So this is Psalm 95's exhortation. Is it true for you? And I hope and pray that it is. And if it's not, please heed the warning that then follows. 
the warning. For the final phrase of verse 7 changes the tone of this song, as I'm sure you heard when Mary read. And it continues. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. Friends, the instance that's referenced here is that it occurred as Moses led the people through the wilderness. It's in Exodus 17, and it's following God's provision of manna and quail. And here the people once again set out under the Lord's leadership. They then encamped where the Lord instructed them, but when they could find no water, rather than remembering God's miraculous provision of bread and meat, they grumbled. Now, before, before anybody wants to offer the excuse, well, Andrew, bread and meat are a very different commodity than water. You need water far more than you do the other two, and so possibly we could justify their grumbling. Just two chapters prior, God had done the very same thing at Marah, a different place, only he did it with water. Now, you may recall when we walked through the book of Exodus together, we studied this very story, and we noted that in it, it revealed the truth that God's leadership of his people reveals the fact that he knows and provides for their needs. At Marah, God led Israel three days into the desert, and when they stopped, the water where they were was undrinkable. And yet, what did God do? He provided, didn't he? He provided. And here, in a seemingly identical situation, the people grumble. They apparently ignore the reality of all that they've witnessed. They've seen with their eyes, they've heard with their ears, they've known with their minds of God and His person, and they reject the Lord. With the result being, as God explains to us there in verse 10, for 40 years I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. In His frustration at Israel's stubbornness, the Lord speaks judgment over them. Now, we need to note that these exact words as given us here in our psalm aren't or may not be drawn from any single text in the Pentateuch. Rather, they effectively embody the substance of what the Lord said time and time again in regards to his people. Either it was through his own mouth, his voice through the prophets, or by his own actions that he performed among them. But the point is, in this quotation, this psalm captures the essence of Israel's heart. Not a heart of flesh marked by sincere humility before God, genuine devotion to God, and a love and desire to love and obey God. Rather, it reveals a sinful arrogance demonstrating an attitude of entitlement and a desire to be served rather than to serve. And friends, this morning as the Israelites had heard God speak, they had experienced His love and witnessed His provision, so have we. For together, we've listened to God's word, sung, prayed, studied, in which he declares his love for us, demonstrated in the gospel as he sent his own son to take our place, dying in our stead so that we might have life. We've heard God speak through his word. We've experienced his gospel as described in this word. And were we to take the time, then we could all stop and share stories of God's rich provision in our lives, all faithfully in accordance to his word. The only question then that remains for us this morning is how will we respond? Will we, like the Israelites before us, as described in this text, smile, enjoy the relief provided in the moment, and then leave to continue living in our own strength for our own ends and to our own praise? Or will we humble ourselves, 
recognizing the arrogance that so often marks our hearts, when we repent of those selfish acts, our, our sin of pride and the desire to be our own God, when we admit that we need a Savior, confess our sin and repent and believe, I, I pray that every single person here has done this very thing already. But if you haven't, if you're here today and you have never and will can't with confidence confirm that you have had a second birth as this experience of God's grace is described in the New Testament, this moment when you suddenly came alive and realized that you had life, if this has never happened to you, then please don't leave without speaking to me or to someone else because don't leave as you are. For, for our song concludes with these chilling words that are spoken by the Lord, our Maker. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Church, those words were spoken to a people that had experienced God's provision, witnessed His grace and love, and yet were told that their hearts were hardened and they rejected Him. You've heard, don't reject the Lord today. For this is the warning that our God has given us. There's no other name under heaven given to men and women by which we may be saved in the name of Jesus. And the scriptures say that no one can call Jesus Lord unless the Father enables them. May, may we all express our thanksgiving to God for all that he has done for us in his glorious gospel as we sing as we shout, extol Him with music and song, and for the quieter among us, humbly bow before Him, kneeling in submission. Why? Because He's our God. I hope and pray that He's your God. Would you pray with me as we close with this in mind? Father, You are good. And you, Your Word constantly draws our attention back to the Gospel of the desperate need that each and every one of us has of Your grace to sustain each and every day. Father, each day you describe the mercies of that day as new and sufficient. Father, we never grow beyond our need of your grace. Never become so mature that we are enabled to live in our own strength according to your word for your glory. Rather, we become more and more appreciative of the fact that we are without any hope but that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus. And Lord, as we study the scriptures, we realize that not only in the scope of the entire story, yet even in individual songs, your gospel is interwoven so that we may never get beyond it. We simply find ourselves turning the corner and being confronted once again with our sinfulness and your love, with our brokenness and your healing power, with our, our frustration and, and fear and your calming presence and grace. Father, thank you that as we gather each week, we are reminded of this gospel. Lord, for some of us may be more aware of this need than others. But God, there's not a one of us who can come today and say, I, I don't need this. Father, as you open our hearts' eyes to reality, we become more and more appreciative of who you are and what you've done for us. God, and in this last week, as we've intentionally given you thanks, Father, for many, it's been a thanks of very practical things, and, and for that we are grateful. 
Lord, our homes, our, our, our land, the protection that we have, our family's health, and particularly our church family's health at this season has been just, again, a, a blessing from you, and we are thankful. But, Father, were these not to be true for us in this moment, our thanks would not cease to flow. Because context doesn't determine why. God, we would give you thanks simply because of Jesus. Lord, when we enter your presence, it doesn't matter the context we've left, the circumstances from which we've, we've walked. It's the presence of God that leads to thanksgiving with joy. Father, would you impress this upon our hearts and minds today? As for many, we will depart to a week that has much in store, much that would not lend itself to natural thanksgiving. Father, would you help us this week to stand on this truth that your presence goes with us and therefore joy ought to mark our hearts every day. And it's a joy that cannot change or be stolen from us because it is rooted in who you are. You alone, the great God. And Father, if there is one today who has yet to experience this joy, Lord God, would you do that which only you can do? As your gospel has been heard, would you change hearts? Father, bring conviction of sin and lead to glory for you, we pray, together as we worship you. For you alone are worthy of that worship. In Jesus' name, amen.